Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. I am Ferenc Lotso, an editor at Revdem, and I have the pleasure of hosting Susan Snyder today. Welcome to the show, Suzanne, and thanks so much for accepting our invitation. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's wonderful to be here. Great to have you on the podcast. Suzanne Snyder is Deputy Director and Core Faculty at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, which is a nonprofit interdisciplinary education and research institute that offers university-style seminars to adult learners. Suzanne holds a PhD from Columbia University, and her main areas of specialization are in political theory and the history of the modern Middle East. Her first book published by Stanford UP in 2018 was titled Mandatory Separation, Religion, Education, and Mass Politics in Palestine. Her most recent book, which we are here to discuss today, is titled The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism, and was released by Verso in the fall of 2021. I should briefly mention that Susan Snyder's writings have also appeared in publications such as the Washington Post, Foreign Policy, the Los Angeles Review of Books, or the Forward, among others. Now, this new book of yours, which we are here to discuss today, Suzanne, is an original and thought-provoking attempt to historicize jihad and contextualize its recent and current appeal. You assert early on that jihad today is, and I'm quoting, neither the natural heir to its earlier forms, nor a phenomenon that can be accounted for within the bounds of Islam alone. And your book indeed examines in turn ideas about agency, community, governance, violence, and political transformation that have emerged among the Mujahideen today. And you explore the type of subject the Islamic State has envisioned and its mode of politics, its constructions of identity and difference, the relationship between its governance and other types of governance prevalent today, as well as its violence targeting civilians, all of that in a broad global frame. And the key aim of yours seems to be, at least that's my reading, is to understand the emergence of a particular type of jihad over the last four decades, uh, or what its continued salience might teach us about the world as a whole that we live in, right? And so, so therefore, uh, you can see in high relief what is latent uh, in the West's own political and social crisis by studying this phenomenon you, you claim in the book. And more specifically, you account for the rise and continued salience of the Islamic State against the backdrop of state fragmentation, the crisis of legitimacy, and emergent configurations of both sovereign and non-sovereign power. At one point, you depict the self-declared uh, caliphate as a specific manifestation of right-wing authoritarian populism that critiques institutionalized knowledge rather than power structures, and that borrows from modern nationalism while also aiming to supersede it. So having said all that, uh, let me ask as a first question, what appears to be truly novel about the forms jihad has taken in the late 20th and early 21st centuries when we consider it as part of a much longer history? Uh, 
Well, yes. I mean, this is a great place to start um, because I think that there's a tendency to regard jihad in this essentialized way as holy war as something that sounds outside of history that doesn't really evolve alongside, say, the broader history of violence or the broader history of warfare, um, which would be a kind of an absurd proposition, but it is one that kind of, I think, continues to hold a lot of um, sway, particularly in discourses in the West, that this is some sort of like you know, medieval residue that's left over from these less enlightened times. So at the first level, we have to see that, you know, yes, jihad has its own history, um, that it in many ways parallels the broader transformation of violence. And um, what I argue in the book is a kind of broader trend toward privatized violence, violence away, uh, away from the state. So, right, at the most basic level, jihad today is no longer viewed as the prerogative of rulers or of states, right? It has become a insurrectionist or a vigilante tool almost that can be used against the existing political order. Um, and it's important to note that for most of its history, jihad had functioned with as a sort of warfare that Muslims were authorized to wage. And with that designation came a great deal of legal stipulations over who could be attacked, what weapons could be used, who was obligated to fight. Um, in the classic Sunni legal literature, jihad is considered a collective obligation that's incumbent upon the community as a whole. This is not something that everyone must perform kind of by themselves in the same way that right, your peasant in medieval Europe doesn't have the capacity to wage war on the, the, the neighboring kind of feudal territory. Um, and I, I think that this makes intuitive sense if we think about how those who are called to jihad, the mujahideen, were formed, they, they functioned as conscripts, right? They'd be called up for duty by a recognized ruler who possessed a great deal of latitude in deciding whether a war was necessary at that time or not. Now, the last time that we saw jihad really operating along these traditional lines was arguably the Ottoman Empire's declaration in 1914 when they entered the First World War. And even there, there were plenty of kind of novel factors that, that we could get into. Now, to, but just to kind of, for the sake of comparison, we can keep that, that the Ottoman kind of declaration um, in mind and then jump to the end of the 20th century. And you have the kind of, you know, self-declared jihad of Osama bin Laden in the late 1990s by this man who it, neither is the leader of a state nor has any army nor is any, in any possession of real religious credentials that would kind of qualify him to issue religious rulings. Right? Bin Laden himself is the ideological byproduct of a shift that had actually begun several decades earlier um, with the argument put forth more, most forcefully by the Egyptian thinker Said Qutb that jihad was no longer in these days of corrupt and impious rulers, a collective duty, but was rather an individual one that could and should be undertaken by all Muslims everywhere. And I think many pe people miss the real modernity behind Said Qutb's repositioning of jihad in this way, which emerged as much from the experience of liberalism and particularly the liberal critique of absolutism on the one hand and the conceptual development of individualism uh, and the individual as this kind of key social and political actor on the other. Uh, and it's this pivot really that paves the way for jihad as we encounter it today, a practice that's associated with non-state actors or even uh, you know, these so-called lone wolves outside and above the international state system. Now, once that we, I think, come to grasp this like really fundamental transformation in the nature of jihad, I think it becomes easier to create some basis of comparison with movements outside the Islamic frame as well. Um, and that, right, because we can stop viewing it then as this instantiation of medieval violence that is kind of left over. And then suddenly we start to see it as a, you know, possibly not only a modern, but like a hyper-modern phenomenon.
Great, that's really fascinating. And in connection with that, I also wish to ask you a, a question about how you would situate the views of the Islamic State on democracy, power, and the state alongside other present-day radical, authoritarian, and reactionary movements. What do these movements actually share with each other? And what might make the Islamic State quite specific, perhaps? Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> I'll share with you now and kind of throughout the book as a whole. But, um, right, I think, again, at the starting at the most basic level, um, if we cast aside this view of jihad as ahistorical or essentialized or um, or outside, or really existing outside of, you know, a kind of common uh, world history, um, then suddenly these groups appear on the threshold of like new modes of neoliberal violence, where the nation state is no longer the primary wielder of force. All right. Um, and we have to contend then with the generalized breakdown of faith in current systems of political authority. Right. That is one thing that these mobilizations, I think, point to is this kind of, you know, broad based legitimation crisis. Um, there's right a lot uh, other things that we could point to as well um, uh, in terms of substantive overlap. Right. So there's like this very savvy use of media, for instance, to produce a politics of spectacle. Um, the creation of new forms of political identity and community that are not necessarily tied to territory. Uh, this real sense of disenchantment with politics as usual and the resulting pivot to anti-democratic means to kind of uh, untraditional pathways for political transformation with the sense that, right, particularly the slow grinding wheels of democracy are no longer adequate to solve the challenges that are before us. Uh, these repeated innovations in the name of so-called tradition is, you know, kind of a very familiar um, uh, feature of many of these movements. And I think um, alongside of that, I would note the elevation of violence as the premier form of civic agency. I'm very fascinated in, um, you know, the, in, in the role of violence here as the one thing that people are called upon to do in within these anti-democratic uh, movements, because it's a way of preserving the authoritarian character, of course, uh, as if to say that, you know, we do not need you to govern, we only need you to harm. Uh, so on the one hand, you have the allure of agency, you have the allure of being able to do something, which is, is it, it kind of counteracts a sense of, I think, paralysis that many people experience, again, within democratic systems where the kind of pathways to civic participation feel kind of very flimsy and are increasingly hollowed out. Um, but what are you called to do? You're called essentially to inflict harm. Um, and and I, I think the, the, the real kind of um, glorification of violence, the romanticization of the fighter, all of this, the, the entire aesthetic sensibility around violence is quite key to understanding um, the nature of these kind of anti-democratic and authoritarian movements. Um, so I think it's also at these like, I would say more like substantive levels that it's productive to compare the Islamic state with far right movements in the West, right? It's not that they're all of these people are so-called terrorists or something, right? This is a term that tells us very little in real terms about how people understand themselves or their communities or why they do the things that they do. But if, but if we look at this level of, you know, agency or community or governance, I, I do think the, the parallels are, are, are quite striking. Great. I think that's a fascinating argument, which I'm sure we could discuss for a lot longer. But there's really an element to it, which I wanted us to enter a bit more, which is that your book also considers points of com commonality between 
nihilistic and also one might say random forms of violence by different actors in various places. And at the same time, you point to a deep-seated desire to differentiate, right? Symbolically differentiate what we might call our violence, that is to say Western violence, or maybe more specifically US-based violence from theirs, right? Regardless of the actual forms uh, violence might take uh, in various places. So your book, in a sense, directly uh, challenges or directly threatens even the integrity of the prevalent view and the prevalent narrative that is built on the idea of jihad being wholly foreign and in a sense exotic uh, to a Western and again, more specifically a US audience. So would you perhaps be willing to discuss the discursive strategies through which contemporary forms of jihad are made to appear wholly foreign and in some sense exotic? And what actual points of commonality do you see between its forms of radical violence and those being inflicted uh, in the US and in other places by other kinds of actors? Well, certainly there still exists a formidable infrastructure in the West that perpetuates a view of jihad as this, again, blast from the past as fundamentally anti-modern, uh, opposed to kind of modern rationalism and really Western values writ large. And it's far more comforting to think that the violence inflicted by jihadi groups represents something antithetical to the West, something that is outside, quote unquote, our history and experience and is wholly distinct from it in ontological terms. Um, but on the contrary, when you see the Islamic State urging its followers to, you know, exploit uh, the easy availability of weapons in the U.S. as a means of carrying out mass shootings, or to admit that the purpose of such missions is not to achieve a practical political goal, but to inflict carnage and attract media attention. I think you see the contours of something else. So this is not necessarily a cosmic showdown between our modernity and their fundamentalism, but that there is something rotten within this modernity itself, which no one is truly stands outside of any more so than anyone stands outside of like a global force like capital. So taking this proposition seriously, then it means there can be no reassurance that Islam is the problem. Uh, and it forces a much more reflexive look at these crises uh, and really forces us to ask, what is it about our kind of very modern, very globalized war world uh, that is generative of so many far-right and reactionary movements? Um, and these movements that both register an enormous amount of malaise with the kind of status quo on the one hand and yet offer no real alternative to it besides destruction and violence. Um, and you're right, in terms of kind of the second part of the question, um, where we see the overlap and this is kind of where we see these overlap in cultures of violence, we could think about a few things here. So, right, the cosplaying, uh, for instance, is, is, is a very kind of noted feature of many of these movements, the sense of hyper-reality, right, living within this, you know, social media ecosystem. Um, and I think all of that is noted. One of the things I'm interested in on the ethical plane is really the abandonment of any appeals to guilt or innocence to justify violence, to justify killing, which is really largely randomized, uh, or at best just, you know, purely symbolic, uh, as was the case um, in killing, you know, US aid workers by the Islamic State, for instance, in kind of retaliation uh, for American airstrikes. 
Um, it's really interesting to read through the, you know, um, statements that are put out by the Islamic State uh, to justify the killing of uh, someone like James Foley, for instance, right? It's not that Foley has to die because he has committed some sort of personal wrongdoing. It is, they, it is, it is, you know, wholly this kind of media spectacle. It is meant to be broadcast, to be disseminated worldwide, to create the sense of uh, outrage and to inflict on the West this psychological wound that is, um, you know, that is far greater than some sort of real material wound that, you know, a, a militant group like the Islamic State is actually capable of. Um, and, the, and, you know, so if you consider all that, you have to think about like, what is the role of, you know, of the victim in these, uh, you know, in, in these spectacles? And you see that they are actually primary, they're primarily props, right? They are means to an end and the end itself is spectacle. Um, and this is not dissimilar to, I think, the logic of the kind of mass shooting that we see in the West as well. Um, and it really does gesture at this world in which kind of, yes, questions of like guilt, innocence, res personal responsibility, any of that uh, is becoming quite obscure. Um, and, and, and human beings themselves are these kind of really instrumental um, instrumental means in the production of some sort of politics and spectacle. Great. I think these are very, you know, challenging and you know arguments that we should definitely uh, take very seriously. And I think you also present a number of observations in the book, which in a way push this argument of similarities even further. Uh, you argue, and again, I'm quoting uh, the book: if we have to locate the Islamic states, states networked version of political community within known models, it is the modern corporation that yields the most family resembles, end of quote, and that by understanding Sharia as a ready-made system of law that in, in fact requires little by way of human interpretation, the Islamic State stands at the forefront of a trend that hopes to transform government into management, right? Politics into mere administration. These are two observations that really struck me while reading uh, your book. And and I believe they also might strike uh, your readers and our listeners as really intriguing ideas that are perhaps in need of some further elucidation. So let me ask you, in what ways does the Islamic State resemble a modern corporation uh, in the way it, op it, it operates? And why do you say in the book that it has ambitioned to transform politics into mere administration? How can we observe uh, these tendencies? Well, I have to thank uh, and, and acknowledge here, right, the work of some uh, predecessors who were very influential in helping me develop these arguments, right? So on the one hand, Faisal Devji uh, and Philip Bobbitt, uh, both of whom were writing about, you know, the corporate structure of Al-Qaeda when I think I was like still an undergraduate. Um, so these are, I want to just, you know, underscore that these are um, observations that, you know, other scholars have kind of have put out there as well. And it might sound a little bit outlandish at first, but but you know just just humor me in in thinking about the way in which something like yeah the Islamic State is organized, um, right? A truly global field of operations with franchises in different countries, uh, all loosely tied to each other, but right coordinating with and reporting up to some sort of you know central headquarters. 
Um, I know even for all of its you know, territorial ambitions, the Islamic State is this like fascinating glimpse of a form of political organization that right, both mimics and supersedes the nation state. And I do think it's like the modern multinational corporation that is the, yes, it's like the, it's the closest cousin here, right? Nothing is exactly precise, but it is the closest cousin. Uh, I, uh, in my book, I compare it to um, you know, a multinational like Glencore. Uh, which similarly boasts, you know, numerous branches and, you know, thousands of hundreds to thousands of employees worldwide, right, kind of stretched across the globe in these different, uh, in these different countries that are all at least nominally controlled by its executive team back in Switzerland, right? This structure looks far more similar to me to like what the Islamic State is trying to build than, you know, than the traditional nation state, um, right? And these groups are interesting because they right, they all exercise power that is not technically sovereign anywhere, but it is nonetheless existent everywhere. That is the, the goal. Um, and whether we want to call this non-sovereign power or super-sovereign power, right, it's clear that uh, this power is not bound by the international state system, uh, that it scoffs at you know, countries' claims to be the masters of their own affairs. Um, right, and this is true from you know in, uh, under kind of jihadi groups that essentially kind of control large swaths of territory that are nominally claimed by right uh, existing nation states. It's also true for people working in extractive industries like mi mining or oil. You know, in you know many contexts in the global south, where you know state structures are essentially doing the bidding of uh, you know of these of these large corporations and and of capital more broadly. So. I think that that's kind of what I would say on on, on the structure piece, um, you know, uh, and beyond the structure, you know, what about the governance itself, right? You kind of mentioned this argument about transforming politics into administration. Um, and this is one of the more unexpected things that I discovered when delving into these sources. And we have to back up here a little bit to consider not only Sayyid Qutb's kind of contributions from the middle of the 20th century, but even a few decades earlier, uh, his South Asian kind of predecessor, Abu Alam Maududi, who wrote extensively on Islamic governance and its relationship to democracy. And broadly speaking, I think for both of these men, any sort of democratic deliberation on the law itself is unnecessary because they operated under the assumption that the law in the form of Sharia had already been given in a kind of perfected form and that all, remind, all that really remains for human hands is to administer it. And Qutb especially denied the role of human agency in determining what the law is to begin with. Uh, truly alighting the fact that, right, there is no singular Islamic law. There is a cacophony of legal opinions, competing schools of interpretation, and so forth. But this legal complexity is just kind of constantly cast aside, either as an aberration or, or just simply ignored um, by, you know, first by, by Qutb and kind of, and the groups that have kind of come, um, you know, in his footsteps and kind of most recently the Islamic State which claims to be, right, it claims in, not, not that it is, um, you know, uh, uh, articulating one version of Islam, but its version of Islam is the only one that is, uh, uh, that is appropriate. It is the only true one, it is the only pure one, uh, which is kind of it's along these lines. This is, this is why it can kind of cast so many actually existing Muslims outside the folds of what it deems to be, you know, real or genuine Islam. Um, and the law, yes, is kind of claimed is, is in, in much of this writing, is just clear as day. Uh, so even when Islamic State is adopting positions that are really opposed to the you know, stance of the majority of Sunni jurists past and present, for instance, you know, 
executing aid, aid workers or journalists or kind of, you know, burning the Jordanian pilot alive. These are things that are extremely controversial within the, you know, mainstream um, kind of uh, Sunni jurisprudence. There's always a, a sense that, you know, that th these disputes are kind of beyond, beyond the pale um, and that whatever they're doing is the kind of pure application of the law in this unadulterated, unmediated fashion. Um, and if you have this view of the law as already given, it's not a matter of coming together in a political field then to decide what type of society we want to build, but it's really about administering a law that is supposedly already given and that is beyond contestation. Um, it is, you know, governance reduced to middle management. Um, and right, as I kind of referenced before, the problem, of course, is that like the law doesn't give itself and not even in Islamic context does the law give itself. Um, and this is a view that kind of completely elides the role of human interpretation and human agency in developing what the kind of you know normative um, rulings within Sharia are to begin with. Um, and this is not a, I don't think that this is a, um, an argument, you know, that had much, had much kind of uh, purchase, you know, prior to the 20th century that all of this work of, you know, of jurists and scholars was somehow irrelevant to deciding what the law is. Um, uh, but as I was thinking about this, I was struck by how much this discourse mirrored the neoliberal one that was being developed in the second half of the 20th century, um, you know, most forcefully by figures like Milton Friedman, who also aimed at the elimination of the political as the site of substantive contestation. Uh, he has this kind of great quote from Capitalism and Freedom, and I'm just gonna read it, it says, what the market does is to greatly reduce the range of issues that must be decided through political means and thereby to minimize the extent to which government need participate directly in the game. I read this and was like, oh, good Lord, this is like the other side of this, you know, this, this, this kind of denial of the political that I am seeing here. So on the one hand, we have this depoliticized space that's completely subject to market forces that are supposedly beyond human control or comprehension. Right. And on the other side, this depoliticized space that's subject to religious precepts that are also supposedly beyond any sort of human hands, human control, so on and so forth. Um, and I'm really interested in this particular type of power, which you know, derives its efficacy from claiming to exist beyond human agency, um, beyond interpretation, beyond any sort of public debate. It's this kind of form of power that's, you know, it's always trying to cover its own tracks. Uh, and in an earlier work, I had developed the idea of a politics of denial. Uh, and I think that that coinage, you know, works here as well to describe this type of power whose constitutive trait is to deny its own social construction. Um, and however, again, strangely, it, it, it might it might appear to put like Milton Friedman in conversation with uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, <laughs> they, they come to articulate uh, strikingly similar views of, of kind of a hollowed out political space uh, that can merely be administered and managed because the work of law giving is basically been has, has been rendered irrelevant. Great. I think these are really intricate arguments, and I'm very glad we had the chance to, to discuss them a bit. And I also wanted to ask you more about how you see the Islamic State in the context of liberalism and also in the context of the political left. You describe the Islamic State as a nihilist response and also a clear sign of the collapse of political imagination, right? And in this context, you assert, and I'm quoting again, that there are good reasons to consider the rise and proliferation of contemporary jihadist movements as products of the precise triumph of liberalism 
that Fukuyama celebrates. And that contemporary jihad is not so much the heir to the radical leftist tradition, as some would assert, but much rather a symptom of its decline. So would you care to elaborate on these two assertions? In what ways is contemporary jihad a product of liberalism's triumph? And in what way may it be called a symptom of the decline of the left? Yeah, so, I mean, I think one way, I'll, I'll kind of, maybe by way of answering this question, tell you how I came to think about this as someone who's kind of trained, right, as a historian. Um, uh, and that right, I was compelled to ask when I was starting to delve into these, you know, sources on the Islamic State, um, you know, if this apocalyptic literature, which um, these, you know, that that they became so known for, um, right, if this has existed within Islamic sources for well over a millennium, what is giving the apocalyptic vision particular appeal in our own time? And this is all the more noteworthy because even you know prior generations of um, you know of, of, of Islamic militant groups like Al Qaeda, right? Not really into that. The end of the world wasn't really the apocalypse. Not so much their thing. Um, and this is quite new and quite unique to the Islamic State. Uh, why is that the case? And of course, there's the um, you know the, there's the Graham Wood uh, response to this, which was um, kind of you know featured in this you know very influential essay that he published in the Atlantic, and things like what ISIS really wants or something along these lines, right? That the group is you know reviving an authentic religious sensibility from medieval times. Um, but then even so, it's like, well, why now? Why do these things have purchase in, you know, the early 2000s in a way that they didn't have in like the 1960s or the 1980s even? Um, so I think it's a lot more helpful to situate this apocalyptic turn alongside our own foretold end of history uh, and to ask, well, what happens when you come to believe that the work of thinking or of political imagination and really of world making is over? Um, that there really is no alternative, uh, particularly when the world as it exists is so untenable for many people. Um, and my, I think that it is nihilism that's the other side of this sort of liberal, you know, triumphalism uh, that kind of, you know, that, that was, has become so associated with Fukuyama. Um, you know, that if we are repeatedly told that there is no alternative, that essentially a better life is not possible here on earth, then should it be all that surprising if one possible response to that is a kind of anticipation of the end of the world and a view of a better life as only really available as after death. Um, and so this giving up on the idea that there's a better world to come, right, if only we are able to build it, I think provides a space to the right because they've been the only ones who are who have offered a real alternative to the status quo. We'll even recognize how untenable the status quo is, right? This is something that kind of mainstream liberalism has had a, a quite difficult time really doing, um, and right, and particularly you know if you think about this within the context of the Middle East and, and not just the Middle East but really across the global South. Um, you know, since the kind of fall of the Soviet Union, the loss of any sort of kind of patronage for left movements, the just kind of um, real like assault of neoliberalism on states institutions um, that you've kind of seen across the board, you know, you have a, an absolute hollowing out of a kind of an Arab left, a kind of, you know, a left more broadly in, in the global south, with, with, you know, obviously few and notable exceptions um, in, you know, in, in certainly in South America. 
but the certainly the um, the energy is has has moved rightward um, in much of the kind of Middle East and, and and Central Asia as the only real alternative to yes this this absolutely corrupt untenable um, status quo. And when I think about that, also like vis-a-vis -vis what's happening here um, in the West, and particularly in the U in the U.S., um, you know, with the kind of U.S. far right, it's you know certain things kind of come into view that right, like their U.S. far right counterparts, the Islamic State fighters, they desire what they desire agency in the face of these interlocking systems of control, um, some sort of community in the face of atomization. Um, action in lieu of just kind of mere deliberation. Um, and really, you know, they desire the reassurance that maybe there's someone in charge of this mess that might be undone through some sort of concerted effort by this, you know, brave and elected group of warriors. Um, and yeah, in a, in a world in which the pathways for civic participation are mostly hollowed out, material conditions render genuine community increasingly rare, I don't think it's any wonder that organizations that offer some semblance of agency and community can attract adherence. Um, and if these, uh, yeah, if these, if these mobilizations, if they are not present on the left, um, you know, people are going to still seek them out. Uh, and it is just it happens to be the right that has kind of managed to seize this, seize this energy. I mean, and of course, though, I should just add that there's, of course, something like tragic to this, because, uh, you know, there's the alternative that is being that is being offered here on the far right is not really an alternative that's going to lead to kind of broad based human flourishing It's not a really an alternative that's going to lead to freedom, it is certainly leads to the destruction of the status quo, but it kind of it, it, it heralds something that is even worse, <laughs> right? And 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 without any sort of um, kind of counterpart on the left, I think that that is you know a very dangerous place to be in, where we see this kind of rightward rightward drift towards some sort of like authoritarian capitalism as being you know or illiberal nationalism as being the kind of the, the future with you know with with very little to kind of counter it um, on the left. Uh, this has been a very fascinating conversation for me personally with many original uh, and incisive arguments. I think we had a very wide-ranging conversation by now. And as a last question, I wanted to explore, uh, us to explore something even broader, if you wish, namely the framework of interpretation uh, you present in the book, because, you know, you described neoliberalism, and I'm quoting, as a process of institutional capture wherein the state, including its regulatory agencies, is recalibrated and redeployed to serve the needs of capital, end of quote. And you also argue that one should in fact expect that the undermining of democratic control over warfare uh, would accompany the triumph of factional interests over the public good as such, right? So at the same time, you are interested in a, a bi-directional circulation of ideas and also practices and you approach neoliberalism and I think that's really intriguing as a form of colonial blowback right in which populations in the global west and in the global north are nowadays in a sense ever more subjected to the types of degradation that long typified colonial rule uh, on other continents, whether in Asia or Africa, or maybe one might mention also uh, Latin America uh, in this context. So in other words, you see the global South, not as the secondary market for Western politics, but rather as a key site 
of the emergence of new forms of politics, right? I think that's really quite central uh, to what you're arguing in the book. So I was wondering, would you care to elaborate on this broader interpretation of modern and contemporary history and how it might help us grasp the ways in which neoliberalism, again, in the sense that I have just tried to define uh, quoting the book itself, how this form of neoliberalism has emerged hegemonic. And then last but not least, would you therefore say that the Islamic State has, in a sense, foreshadowed a potential global political future? And if that is the case, what should we then do to make sure that that political future does not actually become uh, our future? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I think within the realm of political theory, um, right, most people who work in, in this in this world are, you know, they, they're, you know, using the Western case studies as their templates, right, this is kind of a well-known critique at this point of political theory is kind of being very Eurocentric and then using this frame to kind of, you know, try to explain or model uh, or make predictions sometimes even about the rest of the world. Um, and Right. I came at this from a quite different perspective that of being, you know, trained originally as a historian, particular historian of the kind of uh, colonial world in the Middle East, um, you know, more particularly. And, you know, to look at, to, to do political theory from that pool of sources and to use that as your, um, uh, you know, again, not to necessarily create a new universal. I don't think we <laughs> I don't think we want to just swap like a Eurocentric uh, view with like one that, you know, completely centers the global South, but really to see these things in some sort of, you know, circularity and some sort of relation with one another, you see, to see trends emerging kind of dialectically um, is more my approach. And the, you know, I think in terms of the kind of question you are answered about or asked about neoliberalism as you know being conceptualized as a form of colonial blowback really this comes from cons considering the orientation or the relationship between the state on the one hand uh it's kind of um uh it's, it's violent arms in terms of military policing it's kind of punitive uh, uh kind of whole punitive machinery Right, so the state on the one hand, capital and the populace. What is the relationship between these three things? Um, it's, it's, you know, of course, in the kind of colony in this kind of high period of colonialism, where you see that relationship in really high relief, the, that the state is, is, uh, you know, chiefly a tool to be mobilized for the protection and preservation of private profit uh, uh, to. Um, to put down any sort of kind of democratic rebellion or any sort of popular resentment to, um, you know, to the status quo and to serve the ends of capital uh, over and against any sort of uh, democratic or popular discontent. Um, and so when I see in the U.S., for instance, in various cities trying to lure major corporations through these multi-billion dollar tax, pa uh, tax break packages, uh, you know, it's really clear who is who is gaining the upper hand here. Uh, when I see countries like truly unable to even you know tax corporations, uh, who's beca because of the global structure of kind of neoliberal finance, right? They can easily shift kind of capital and profits from one jurisdiction to the other. You see a, a world in which really the state is not necessarily have the upper hand here. That the state is kind of having to lure capital um, in in this. Again, it is a kind of race to the bottom at the end of the day. 
um, and that it ends up serving goods which are not that of the populace and ends up kind of creating these destabilizing conditions that I think authoritarian alternatives to democracy are so dependent upon. Um, and so, yes, we can, again, we can, I think we can see some of this in clear relief by looking to the global South, by looking to places like the Middle East, where in many ways, this kind of process of state fragmentation, the crisis of legitimation, um, the real kind of hollowing out of a sense of a, the, the state as a, as a vehicle to serve the kind of public good is, is more advanced and say, is, is this not some sort of past? Is this not some, you know, that but maybe a kind of possible future here? Um, that it's not necessarily that these are places that right haven't caught up on whatever like developmental index we want to mobilize, but these are really kind of pure unadulterated uh, looks at what happens when the kind of state is a vehicle for serving private interests um, in a way that we see, I think, the kind of, you know, the, the attempted kind of recalibration of states in the West as well. Um, so in terms of whether or not, right, yes, is this the future? Um, I, I always like to say that historians, we have very fuzzy uh, crystal balls. <laughs> I'm, not in, I'm not in that that business. But it does seem, um, you know, it, it, it does seem likely that some sort of authoritarian capitalist uh, future is, is the one that uh, coming toward us. Um, that that comes with, at least in the U.S., a real um, a, a real chance of like genuine civic fragmentation and some sort of some sort of violence. Right. We do have militant groups operating on our, our shores as well at this point. Um, in terms of how would how might we prevent that? I mean, I don't think there's any other way other than through a kind of revitalized left and not just in a purely ideological means. Right. People talk about like declining faith in democracy. Oh, in, as if like people are just supposed to believe in democracy, like the way that, I don't know, they believe in like Santa Claus, right? Like Santa Claus has, he's got something to give. There are presents under the tree. And if you have your democracy reduced to, you know, kind of really hollowed out to the point where it's just, you know, you get to vote every few years for someone who doesn't actually represent your interests, doesn't actually make any sort of meaningful changes that you can see, why are you going to believe in democracy? Maybe you will think that, you know, the military can do a much better and a much more efficient job running the show. And so I think that there is right, a tendency, particularly upon liberals who think in such ideological terms, to view the kind of decline of faith in democracy as purely like one of belief that's detached from the material circumstances that make democracies compelling to begin with. Um, so one of the answers here is that right, the democracies that we do have, the democracies that we want to build, they have to govern. They have to govern in ways that really truly show their kind of material benefits to people's lives. And then we can talk about whether or not people believe in democracy in this sort of kind of abstract or ideological fashion. But I think that those two have been detached largely in the way that liberals think about democracy as like the ideological project on the one hand uh, that is supposed to sustain itself even as its material benefits have, 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 have been eroded. So I think that it's, you know, a lot of this is not, it's not particularly exciting. It's like the really like quotidian act of governing at every single level, uh, uh, you know, local, state, federal and in, uh, in the US and really making making the advantages of, say, a, a of a larger state of a state that can serve the actual public good apparent in people's lives in the way that I don't think it has been for quite a long time. Thank you so much for that answer. I think it shows very nicely the contemporary relevance and also the urgency of some of these questions that you're discussing in the book. I'm very glad we had the chance to also address 
these more contemporary facets of the argument. I've been talking with uh, Susan Snyder today about her new book, The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism, which is a wide-ranging immensely learned, original, and really very challenging book. I had great pleasure reading it. Thank you so much for being on the show, Suzanne. You're welcome. It's so great to be with you. Thanks so much for that. I hope the listeners have also enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for, for paying attention to this subject. Until the next time. <laughs>